It's the Airhead 247 Podcast. The Airhead 247 Podcast, powered by Wedgetail Ignition Systems, state of the art ignition for your 247 Airhead. Proudly made in Australia by motorcyclists who love their BMWs by the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who invite you to ride inspired. And Boxer2Valve.com, the premium supplier for all your airhead replacement parts. Now, let's get this thing fired up. Well, hello again, everyone. This week, we're going to take a trip to the Platte Valley Fall Tech Days outside of Kansas City, Missouri. Also, We'll be joined by George Thomas at Air Support BMW. We'll be talking about best practices for new or novice airhead owners when navigating repairs and service needs and finding a mechanic. Before we dig into things, a few bits of news and notes. Keep your survivor bike submissions coming in. The next one will appear in the December 2023 edition of the BMW MOA Owners News. Reminder, you can drop a line with your pictures and story about your survivor bike to airheads, with an S, airheads247 at hotmail.com. Also, if you have guest suggestions or topics you'd like to hear discussed with one of our hosts, same thing, drop us a line, airheads247 at hotmail.com. We're diligently working on the Airhead 247 website with an eye for a January 2024 launch. The site will host some ancillary content, including more in-depth stuff with the Survivor Series, so more pictures, some audio interviews. We'll also have some curated parts for sale, and we're working on a service bulletin database, so stay tuned for that in the new year. Finally, if you're so inclined, please leave us a comment or review, good, bad, or indifferent, especially if you're tuned in via the Apple podcast application. Your ratings and comments provide valuable feedback on how we're doing and assist in measuring audience engagement as a whole. Okay, so just about a year ago, in fact, it was this weekend, uh, one year ago today, uh, I attended the annual Platte Valley Tech Days at Mark Nelson's shop near Kansas City, Missouri. Now, if you can believe it, all the years I owned an Airhead, this is the first Tech Day I ever attended. For those of you who are not familiar, Tech Days are events Airhead Beamer Club members host all over the United States. These are sort of like rallies with a purpose in that, of course, there's hanging by the campfire, the occasional beer going down, uh, the occasional ride, those sorts of things. However, these events also focus pretty heavily on motorcycle repairs in a group format. Members will bring their bikes to a tech day to replace a rear main seal, maybe install a new tire, any number of jobs that they may be tackling either for the first time or need the assistance of others. For this event, I brought along a 77R100S that needed new wheel bearings. We did that job there just fine. There were others there replacing pushrod seals, uh, somebody installing a new crankcase breather among the many other jobs. So on tap, we've got conversations from this event with Joe Brinkman. He's the air marshal for the state of Missouri. 
Mark Nelson, he hosted the event. He still rides an R90-6 his father purchased new. And Jim DeBauer will visit with him. He's riding an R75-6 he bought new in 1975, so we'll hear that story. Off we go to the Platte Valley Fall Tech Days outside of Kansas City, Missouri, on the Airhead 247 podcast. Okay, uh, we're talking with Joe Brinkman. Yep. Uh, you are the Air Marshal here in the Kansas City area, correct? State of Missouri. State of Missouri. Yeah. Okay. So we'll talk about, maybe we'll talk about uh, the Airhead Club a little bit more uh, as we go on through the evening. Uh, but right now we're looking at a nice short wheelbase slash five up on the ramp. 71 vintage. Okay. And uh, very clean. Got some nice chrome accents and trim on it. Pretty a lot of uh, period accessories. It's yeah. a nice bike. So the one thing I first, uh, first thing I noticed about it when he rolled it in was the front center stand. Mm-hmm. I've seen those, but never seen one in person. Same here. Uh, first time I've laid eyes on one, but again, one of those period accessories. Um, the crash bars, the lights that he has on it. Th these are all things that are, uh, you know, period accessories that people put on them to use them. Yeah. Do you know who made that little front? I do not. I, neither do I. I wonder if it was a Krauser or if it uh, might have been a U.S. It looks like something somebody in the States would have made. It doesn't look like a German would have. I agree. We can, we can check and see what we see, but uh, yeah. Okay, so uh, the Slash 5 today is getting a spline loop on the transmission. And so he's taking the transmission out of this bike for the first time. I'm gathering this is his first time wrenching on an old BMW like this. So Right. My understanding is it's, it was a friend of his for quite a while. This okay. bike belonged to a friend of his. So, um, and he's a, he's a British bike enthusiast, but uh, his first BMW. So he's, he's come to the right place to get a little help to get he, this done. He has. So I guess, you know, when, when the transmission's coming out, there's a couple different ways to do it. Um, Usually when I'm pulling a transmission, it's part of a bigger overhaul. I'm not just pulling the transmission out to loop the splines. Right. If I'm going in, I'm going into the rear main, I'm going to check the oil pump seal, check the clutch components, et cetera, et cetera. This is how I've done mine. Right. So I'm on the same page as you. Uh, you're in for a dime, you're in for a dollar. Right. Right. Okay. That's not the case here. So I mentioned that to say when I'm doing that, I'm probably going to go ahead and pull the swing arm off. Uh, clean, you know, check the bearings, clean the swing arm off, you know, have that off, clean the back of the bike, have a look at everything back there. Now, in this case, uh, if you're just pulling a transmission out uh, for this job, is it necessary to yank the swing arm off? No, you can just unbolt it and sort of pull everything back enough to access those splines. And, and actually, I haven't talked to him. I, I think that's the direction we're going here, but... Um, you know, that, that isn't the way a lot of people do it because, you you know, the rear main seal and, and all that should last longer than the interval that you should be, you know, re-lubricating the spline. So if you're doing your maintenance right, sometimes all you need to do is get some grease on that spline. And, and if that's all you're doing, then just pulling that back and then bolting it all back up is, is okay. Yeah, you know? yeah, that's exactly right. Now, couple, it's, I had a Slash 5 for a number of years. In fact, uh, probably the longest tenured bike I owned was a long wheelbase slash high five for about 20 years. Uh, and it's been a while since I set eyes on one. The first thing I noticed right off the bat is the neutral 
switch is located on the back of the transmission. There's a little green wire going back there. We're, I'm so used to the all the other bikes with the switch uh, at the bottom of the yeah. transmission. And, of course, we all know it's prone to leaking Correct. from time to time. Uh, th that, in his case, thankfully, he doesn't really have to worry about that. Right. So he, I can see right now, in fact, he's digging in there and uh, getting that wire loose. Uh, on the spline lube, uh, particularly with the transmission, um, I've seen guys where they'll just sort of ease it back a little bit, actually take the swing arm apart, not necessarily disconnect the drive shaft, Correct. pull it out, get the brush down in there. And Correct. is that his MO here or do I, we know? I think that's where he's going with this. Okay. Honestly, I haven't asked him, but I do think that's what he's, that's what he's planning to do. Cause I, I asked him if he had transmission bolts, if he was going to actually disconnect the drive shaft, he brought some apparently, but the, here's what I like about this is, you know, usually when I do these jobs, I've got a friend, you know, a buddy of mine will come in or I'm by myself. Right. Here he's got 10 buddies. I was just going to say, <laughs> nobody's second guessing me, right? I mean, you just go in and do it. And, you know, if you make a mistake, okay. But here, you know, if you and I were to go over there, we might tell him two completely different things. <laughs> well, it sounds like you and I are actually on the same page, but I don't think that's what he's prepared to do. You know, I don't know how long it's been since somebody got in there and yeah. did the rear main seal, and he may actually know that because he does know the history of the bike. So, um, you know, if it's been more recent and, and it's just a question of making sure that you're covering the base and getting some grease on that spline, then, you know, just pulling it back and doing it that way is probably just fine. Um, I am in the same court as you, where when it's time to do that on me, I, I'm going to pull it apart and clean everything out and put yep. a new neutral switch because mine is underneath and, and you know, go through it and do it that way. Um, I don't put enough miles on my bike anymore to, to make that something that has to happen too frequently. It's an every three year kind of thing, maybe right. even four. And so it doesn't bother me to do it that way. And as far as uh, when we're talking about lubrication on the splines, uh, generally folks are using some sort of molly-based grease. Do you recall what you use or? No, I bought a tube of it uh, from, um, and I don't even remember anymore who, but I'm going to say it was the, like a Honda Molly or Yamalu. Yeah, or there's, something. there's multiple brands, obviously. Um, uh, and I think I, when I bought it, I bought it from the dealer, actually, because the last time I bought it, I did it when I had to do the rear main seal on the bike anyway. So I had a whole pile of parts that came, and uh, that was part of it. All right. Well, since we're sitting here talking, let's talk about uh, Airheads Beamer Club. Okay. Uh, you are the air marshal, as you said. For yeah, I probably know more about that than motorcycle. But. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. Air marshal for uh, the state of Missouri. Correct. All right. How long have you been doing that? Um, that's a great question. I think since 2009. Okay. It's been a while. All right. So what responsibilities fall on the air marshal? Well, you know, it probably varies, and, and different air marshals might interpret that a little differently. I had sort of a mentor in uh, a guy who has passed away now, but Al Sloan used to be the air marshal in the state of Illinois, and he kind of twisted my arm into becoming the air marshal in Missouri after I went to a tech day at his house. And, um, you know, he basically said, look, you're, you're the ringmaster at the circus. You're just there to make sure everything's happening, that people are having events, that you're getting information to people. You don't have to be the, the best wrench in the state. You don't have to be riding the most miles. You know, it's just a question of being the, the sort of instigator, being right, the guy right. that pulls people together. So that's the way I've always looked at it. Um, I'm fortunate to have had people like Mark. Mark is now uh, Mark Nelson, our host today. 
Uh, we believe this is his 14th tech day that he's hosted. So, um, you know, he came to me a long time ago and said, hey, I'm, I'm willing to do this. It was on the western side of the state. We had been having some events on the eastern side of the state, so it was great. You know, to have something over here brought in a whole bunch of other people. Yeah, you're pulling uh, in guys from the code, Dakota. Right, right. We've got people yeah. from multiple states, and that's the way his tech days always are. Um, Iowa, you know, Nebraska, South Dakota. We've even had guys from North Dakota come down for this. Usually there's somebody here from Minnesota, um, is in addition to Kansas, Arkansas, you know. And so he, it's really become kind of a regional thing. And, and he's really kind of developed it into a rally. I mean, it's like a mini rally where a lot of work happens. Um, lots of people show up with no work planned and don't really even help work. But they're here to camp and drink a few beers and talk and catch up with old friends. So um, it becomes just a big social thing. And, and we're fortunate to have Mark and his wife, Jan, who are more than willing to open up this big shop and and their grounds around their house to let a bunch of people come in and uh, take it over for the weekend. Yeah, it's great. And we should say, what a shop. Yeah. I mean, good grief. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, a lot of room. So, all right, so you've been Air Marshal for about nine years now. When did you uh, first get involved with the ABC? Um, when I bought my bike, uh, the bike that I still have, my, my 78 uh, R100 slash 7, it's the only airhead I've ever had. Uh, I bought it, I believe, in 2004. Um, what color is it? It's silver, It's it, but it's not a stock paint. It's okay. The previous owner painted it uh, a different color. Um, and snowflake wheels? It does have the snowflake wheels. Do you still have the turn signal buzzer on it? I have the buzzer. It is not uh, hooked up right now. Okay. I could hook it up in about two seconds and I could buzz away. But I find uh, it fascin fascinatingly annoying. Oh, yeah. I took I disconnected that shortly after. And I put it on a couple times when I let a friend ride it just to, you know, see what they think. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that bike has been incredible to me. I mean, think about the fact that I bought a bike that was over 30 years old at the time. And I've put like 80,000 miles on that bike running wow. all over the central United States. And it's really been, you know, nothing but a pleasure to ride it. I mean, I do work on it myself. And that, that's kind of an obstacle for people. If you're going to pay somebody to keep one of these running, it's, yeah. it's not going to go well. But no. um, <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> but, you know, to buy something like that and put that many miles on it, I mean, I, there's a lot of modern bikes you couldn't put that many miles on if you bought them brand new today. So um, it has had its share of... Um, heavy maintenance and upgrades you know but it, it's still a great bike um i've got a more modern gs adventure now that is seeing the majority of my miles but i'll never get rid of the air sure so you bought the bike you said uh what eight or nine years ago no actually ago. in 2004 I oh wow that bike. okay so that's we're going on 20 years now. right oh, close wow. to 20 years that i've had it and like i said about eighty thousand miles 20 years okay so Bought the bike and it was that was the impetus. Then you're looking for like-minded riders, a club. Exactly. That was how'd you find out about it? Just internet search. Um, I was looking online to try to find some parts suppliers and some different things, and uh, and came across the club and looked at their website and thought, oh, this this sounds like a great group of people. Uh, and I joined, and at the time, um, I don't remember exactly when I joined. It was after I bought the bike, so let's say 2005 or six. Okay. At the time, there was no air marshal in the state of Missouri, so I was trying to contact somebody about local events. Didn't find anything, so I reached out to Al Sloan, the guy I mentioned before in my neighboring state. I live in St. Louis, so Illinois is right across the river. And uh, sure enough, you know, he had some tech days coming up, and uh, 
he was happy to talk about it. And I rode over there and met a bunch of those guys and kind of fell in love with it. And, and I was telling him uh, at the 2007 MOA rally in West Bend, Wisconsin, I said, you know, I'd really like to see something going on in Missouri. And he's like, well, I know how you can make that happen, you know, and, and he started twisting my arm to become the air marshal. So I don't remember exactly when it was in the 2008, 2009 time period that he convinced me that I should do it. And um, I, I sent in a letter to the board of directors and told them I was interested. And shortly thereafter, they made me the air marshal. So. We did start hosting a couple tech days. I got a couple willing people in St. Louis to, uh, you know, to start holding these events and got Gateway BMW, the dealership in St. Louis. They actually hosted an Airheads tech oh, wow. day for us. Cool. Um, yeah, gave us the shop after hours one night. No kidding. And, uh, and we're very helpful. Um, now is, let me jump in there, is um, on Gateway, is that where Hans is? Bob Hans, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I remember seeing, now this is going back a few years, but... He, if I remember correctly, he's a big GS fan. Absolutely. I remember seeing bikes for sale and him buying and moving a bunch of bikes. Yeah, he's a guy that you actually ought to talk to at some point because, um, you know, he's he's done a lot sort of regionally and, and maybe even broader than that to... Uh, you know, increase the, the awareness and the and the enjoyment of those kinds of bikes. He's actually got his own uh, sort of training facility down near Potosi, Missouri, where um, he takes people and, and does rider courses and things like oh, wow. that, off-road stuff. Oh, um, I've seen some photos of crash GSs and he's all muddy and <laughs> things like that before, I think, on the Internet or something yeah, like that. Yeah, I'll, I'll put you in touch with him at yeah. some point. He's a friend. I've known him for a long time, uh, and, you know, I enjoy hanging out with him. Well, so. that's neat. So uh, uh, Gateway opened up the shop, let you use the the facility. They, I mean, gave us, they gave us a lift. One of their mechanics was there. Wow. Um, we ended up using my bike as a guinea pig, and we just went through a valve adjustment, I think, that night, maybe some other small maintenance test yeah. just to show some people um and we had like 20 people show up for it and wow. it was just a fun evening but that that turned into a couple local people in st louis being willing to host and open their garages and they were small in the beginning uh we had a great guy named dick fuller who um passed away a few years ago but he hosted us for years um in a really nice shop and he used to race back in the 70s and was real, you know, kind of just the ultimate motorcyclist. And uh, he was a great guy. So we had a lot of fun there. And, and then other people in the state, like Mark, started to, you know, see what we were doing. And, and Mark has just kind of taken off with it and become, in my mind, sort of the ultimate tech day host. So. Wow. Yeah. Something else. Okay. So 20 years, give or take, you've been uh, involved with the Airheads Beamer Club. Curious from your perspective, uh, how has it changed uh, I mean, members come and go, you know, you mentioned people pass on, uh, things like that. But how, how, how have you seen the club change or evolve uh, during your involvement, if well, at all? Yeah, I mean, I, I have seen it, I think, change a little bit. I mean, you know, I am still sometimes, I'm 58 years old, and I'm still sometimes the youngest guy in an yeah. Airheads event, which, you know, doesn't, doesn't bode well. And I think that's the big trick right now is how do they you know, our, our bikes stopped being made almost 30 years ago. So, you know, what do you do to keep the interest up in those motorcycles? And, you know, a lot of young people really like them, but they don't seem to be as sort of club oriented as, as my generation was, and certainly the older guys. Um, so I think that's the challenge is, is how do you make it appealing to younger folks? When we do get younger people that they own airheads and they come to these events they fall in love with it you know but the trick is to get them to get actually here. come here 
And I talk it up at our local vintage bike nights and things like that, and I have managed to get a few people in, but it's hard to keep them as members. So, um, you know, I don't know what the future is. You know, we were talking last night, a bunch of us, about Model A cars. And, you know, Model A's have, have come down in price, and there's not as much interest in them anymore because the guys that knew them when they were younger are gone, yep. you know. And, and I don't I don't want to see Airheads be the same way, but it's kind of hard to think that it won't go that way. I mean, eventually, they're going to be really archaic, and, you know, the young kids probably won't care for them. Well, you know? and then, you know, conversely speaking, let's say, you know, you get a 30-something here, he pulls up in a cafe bike with a brown seat and brown grips, and everybody's going to be like, ah, ah, Yeah, why did he ruin that bike? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he made it his own. That's yeah. the way I look at it. I agree. And, and uh, you know, I I had stuff like that when I was younger, and, you know, I'm not a purist now. I mean, my, my airhead doesn't really fit the sort of purist attitude. I've done a lot of things to it to make it more rideable, and and, uh, you know, it, I, for a long time, it was the bike that I toured around on, you know, 600-mile days and going to rallies and, and stuff like that. And, and, you know, you have to make it something that works. And that's usually not just a bare-bones stock bike. That's so. true. That's true. Well, one thing I've always said, you know, especially about the recent, you know, sort of cafe craze, whatever you want to call it, that's not much different than if we're talking about some of the guys here who are a little bit older, 60-plus, you know, 70 or whatever. The chopper scene was sure. going on in the 70s. Yeah, I mean they were cutting up bikes and doing that stuff in the 70s. Right. Uh, it's not really not that much different. However, that being said, you know, I can I can see I'm I'm I do if my needle were going one way or the other, I'm a little bit more of a purist. But that's only because I, I like uh, for an old bike. I like the aspect of it's a time machine and it takes me back to right. you know I can get on my bike and think this is how it was in right. 1975. You right. know when I was five years old or whatever. So I mean I enjoy that aspect that aspect of it. But at the same time I don't begrudge anybody from putting a brown seat on. Right. Well, and that's just reversible. It is. You know, for the most part. I mean. Um, to your point about the choppers, I mean, most guys are not going to that level where they're, you know, cutting the front of the frame off and raking the bike different and all that kind of stuff. I, I don't see that going on with, with BMWs, but, um, you know, again, I just feel like people should make it whatever they're looking for. And if that's what they're looking for, great, you know. Have you been able to find, I mean, you, um, I don't know, I'm 52. You and I are probably two of the younger guys here. I mean, have you found, uh, have younger guys come across and, you know, showed up or joined the club and they just maybe don't find interest in it? Or how are you, how are you promoting? A, a little bit of that. Um, I mean, the vintage bike nights are interesting. Yeah, you know, yeah. Most of the younger guys that show up, it seems like they're either on, you know, older Japanese bikes yep. or they're into the choppers. And... Um, you know, the older Japanese bikes, I, they gravitate towards those just because they're cheaper, yeah. you know, they're, they're, and they're more user-friendly, quite frankly, than, than the airheads are. Um, but they always do want to talk about the airheads, and they love them, you know, so sometimes it starts there. Um, there's a few people in the club that, you know, uh, Scott Hubbard, who I know you know, he has, he's done a good job of sort of matching younger folks with bikes occasionally. You know, he's, he finds a lot of motorcycles, he buys a lot of motorcycles, and occasionally I find out that, you know, he made some guy a great deal and, and, and put some younger guy on an airhead. Just and, to get him on the bike. Yeah, and, and, you know, they turn out to be people that hang out with us and come around, but... 
Um, I just think that the younger folks aren't as into the social scene that we are. You know, their their social scene's internet based, and they want to be in in you know chat rooms and forums and things like that. That's a really and good point. That's where they spend their time, and uh, it's kind of unfortunate in my opinion. But you know, I didn't agree with my dad on everything either. So <laughs> that's exactly right. Now, are, Joe, are you uh, active on the forum? Do you get online and talk a lot? I mean, so we're saying that's where younger folks go or some people go. Do you spend a lot of time in the forum? I, I actually do not. Okay. Um, you know, a little bit just among ourselves, like the right. guys that I know. Uh, unlike most of your guests, I was thinking about this when I was listening to your podcast recently. So many of your guests, like, this is like their main focus in their life, right? It's their business or it's, right. it's been their absolute passion. For me, it is truly just a hobby. I mean, I, I own a business that's not... It doesn't have anything to do with motorcycles, and I spend a lot of time with that and with my family. And, you know, for me, coming to an event like this for the weekend is sort of a, it's almost a therapeutic thing because I get away from everything that I do on a normal basis. And right. I just get to hang out and talk about bikes and ride and do stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I think that's a little different. But, no, I do not spend time. Uh, I, you know, I, I follow the Airheads list every once in a while, yeah. the, the Micah Peak or whatever that is. I, I look at that from time to time. And, uh, you know, I, I find there's as much, uh, I think, bad information as good information on there, in my opinion. But, you know, everybody knows you got to take in that into account when you're watching any of those things. That's so. exactly right. That's exactly right. Well, I spend a lot of time on the forums. Uh, personally, you know, I'm going on there looking bikes for sale, parts yeah. for sale, you know, the flea markets are always uh, of interest to me. But then, you know, I do like seeing what people are talking about if there's a particular thread or discussion about as he's removing his transmission or best practices on this or that. So, yeah. you know, I find that interesting to read uh, and go through. And some forums are more active than others. Yeah. And I do. I mean, I look at Adventure Rider sometimes. Yep. I look at other things. But um just not to the extent that a lot of other people do. So, Yeah, I understand. All right, good. Well, Joe, thanks. We'll visit some more later about something sure. else. Yeah, that was good. Good talk. Yep, thank you, buddy. We're committed to bringing you this podcast free of charge, never a paywall or subscription fee. And to help us do that, we rely on the support of our sponsors. We're happy to let you know the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America are continuing their free one-year digital membership promotion for Airhead 247 podcast listeners. The only caveat here to qualify for this offer is that you are either new to the MOA or have not experienced the MOA as a member in the last three years. This offer is good for riders across the globe. So if you're listening to this now, no matter where you are on planet Earth, the offer is valid for you. Digital membership includes... 12 issues of the BMW Owner's News, an annual copy of the BMW Owner's Anonymous book, full access to the MOA website with forums, flea market, and of course, all the money-saving discounts and roadside assistance plans. To join, visit 247.bmwmoa.org. Use the code AIRHEADS247 to register for your free one-year digital membership. It's a quick and easy way to support our efforts here. And of course, it's free. Look for that website and code in the about section of this program. All right, back to the program and our conversation. I think you'll find this interesting with Jim DeBauer, the original owner of an R75 slash six. 
All right, uh, we're sitting down and visiting with Jim DeBauer. And Jim, when we say the word one owner bike, you really personify the one owner bike. So I'm looking on your trailer out there as you're getting ready to head out for the day. You've got a R90 slash six, what year is it? It's an R75. R75 six. Seats off an R90. So that's, what, that's what fooled me. Okay, so you purchased that bike new in? 1975 after I got out of college. Yeah, that was my gift to myself and I borrowed the most money I'd ever borrowed in my life up to that point. It was $3,000 and it uh, had a windjammer fairing on it, brand new. Where'd you purchase it? It was purchased from a, uh, a Honda shop, actually, in Des Moines, Iowa. Is it still, is that motorcycle shop still in existence? No, it's not. It was uh, Honda Town, and the proprietor was elderly or old, older fella at the time, and eventually sold the business. So you bought it, you said you got out of college, kind of your first vehicle. What, what was the impetus? Why did you buy that bike? You had a lot of options, I'm sure. Well, I'd been riding a Suzuki T500 Titan, and in the space of 35,000 miles, I had worn the thing out twice. The first <laughs> time, the cylinders and pistons. The second time, the cylinders and pistons and all the bearings inside of it. So I decided that if I'm going to put these kind of miles on two, two uh, wheels, I better find something that, you know, is going to get me there. And at the time, I was reading about fellas riding their BMWs through the Darien Gap and down to Tierra del Fuego and through the Sahara. So I just decided that was a bike for me. Go for it. And, you know, back then, still, we're talking 1975, 76, I guess. Uh-huh. Um, it was still a relatively new bike here in the States. Well, right, as far as popularity yeah. goes. And, and that particular those models, when they came out, they were kind of a sensation, and uh, yeah, you know, they kind of, they, they did things better than about anything else. Long travel suspension and uh, dependability, those are the things I wanted. What, what's the current, current mileage on that bike now, do you know? Well, the odometer quit at 100,000 miles, and that was a few years after I purchased it. And uh, I guess at the mileage, and I guess it to be somewhere north of 200,000. Wow, that's amazing. One of the neat things on there is, um, I really like it, is you kept all the tags on the back. So essentially you just kind of stack them on one another. So you've got probably a dozen right. license plates back That kind of came from my dirt bike heritage. We used to use old plates as backers on the current plates to help make them a little bit more, uh, uh, give them a little more strength. And I just kind of extended that, I guess. I decided that, well, I'm just gonna leave them on there and just pile them up. In the early years, they gave you one every year. So, yeah, oh, okay. And uh, embossed plates, so I have a few of those, and then later on the stickers came, so they, right. don't, they don't come quite as quickly now, but. I got a pile of them on there. Yeah, that's a neat That's a neat look. It's so, a good conversation starter, yeah, too. It really is. The other thing you were telling me the other day is uh, I saw you've got sidecar mounts on there, too. So you've also got it set up for a sidecar. You pop it on yep. now and then? Yeah, I have an early model California sidecar. 
And uh, yeah, it could go on or off in about 10 minutes. Now, how does that, I mean, you put a sidecar on a bike, it affects how it handles and how it drives. Oh, certainly. You have to have a lot of upper body strength and crosswinds, uh, headwinds, anything like that are problematic. Now, do you still use it on occasion? I certainly do, yeah. If I have a little fun, something to do, or especially when there's kids involved or there anything like that, yeah, I'll put it on. But I generally don't tour with it. It's just uh, a little bit too much work for an older fellow yeah, like me at this point. I understand. I understand. So give me maybe a few of the uh, maintenance repair highlights over the years. I'm just curious, a bike with that kind of mileage, you've owned it all these years. What are some of the major components, if any, you've had to replace on it? Well, of course, tires are number one. Uh, yeah. You know, you go through a lot of tires. But as far as uh, uh, repairs and maintenance, the first 100,000 were pretty much trouble-free, just oil changes and uh, things like that. Uh, as of late, I've had a transmission uh, been replaced. Uh, eventually, had a, a ring brake on one of the cylinders, and even that wasn't enough to stop it. I drove, <laughs> I drove it for a long time with that broken ring till, <laughs> till it just became a little too much of a mosquito fogger. Yeah. <laughs> right. So uh, I parked it, and actually, it sat in the shed for almost 25 years. Oh, really? And about uh, five years ago, I had I was riding another machine that had a, uh, an engine failure. And uh, so that was, seemed to be my quickest route to getting back on the two wheels. And, what, and what did you have to do to it to get it back up and running again? Uh, I'd previously f fixed a, a slash five and we ordered some cylinders and things for it uh, through a, a, a parts uh, a fellow who's selling parts. So I had some, uh, uh, extra cylinder and piston that were in good shape and basically just uh, put that on. I've never done any head work on it. Wow. Uh, and don't, don't, that, uh, some of them have a valve recession problems certain years, but for some reason this one doesn't. And I've, I've run both regular fuel and uh, E10 in it and without any issues. So it's still original top end and everything? The, well, on the one side it is. Okay. I freshen it up with rings. But yeah, it's still pretty much running with all its original head parts and things. So Now, have you ever had inkling to sell it, to get rid of it? Does that thought cross well, your mind ever? Well, if you know me, I'm, I'm that guy that never sells anything. Okay. All right. I've got plenty of room to store things. I, have a, I live on a farm and got a lot of buildings. So, no, I've never... Never entertained that thought at all. What about getting another one? I actually own three more BMWs. Okay, what do you have? What else you got? I have a, a 77 R100S set up as a touring bike. Kind of like the red one I brought. With Luftmeisters yeah. and, and a Krauser fairing. Yeah, very similar to your yep. machine. And uh, I also have a 79 R65 that has an R80 motor stuffed into it. A conversion, and then I also I own a 1983 R1 R80 RT that I tour a little bit with. Okay, that's impressive. So before we finish up here, tell me a little bit about how long have you been a member of the ABC Club and involved with the Airhead Group? The Airhead Group 
Uh, probably more recently. I, I've, I've been a member six or seven years, I would, okay. I would estimate. All right. So more kind of camaraderie, come to the rallies, hang out. So, oh, so did you know a lot of these guys before or did you meet them? I know a few of them, yeah, through other rallies and things. And yeah, it's just a wonderful deal, you know, getting together with all these guys. And, uh, I really look forward to any of the tech sessions I yeah. go to. And, and have, as a retired person now, I'm able to attend many more than I would normally. Now, did you, I did something on your bike here this week. I can't, what was it? Um, I had a little issue with the crankcase breather. Oh, that's right. We talked where about it that. was uh, leaking air or oil onto the uh, transmission and didn't really find any satisfaction, but got a lot of ideas. There so. you go. There and you it's go. back together and running again. So. Well, I got to say, I, like I said, I've seen a lot of one owner bikes, know about them, but yours is really unique. And you know, what a great story. I've had a lot of adventures on it, and, and I got a lot of stories. That's for sure. Let me yeah, let me ask you about that. So one of the things I ask a lot of folks is, uh, tell me about uh, a breakdown you've had, either one where you know the bike stops running, and then you sort of miraculously save it. You come up with a you know a MacGyver fix or something, or conversely, you have a breakdown. It just all hope is lost and you have to get a trailer or get a truck. I'm sure you've had one of those over the years. Well, most recently, yeah, I had a, I was on the way out to South Dakota a few years ago. Uh, shortly after I uh, refreshed it and got it ro rolling again, um, had the, the points uh, get a little tight on it and started popping and banging. It was shortly after I'd adjusted everything, so you know, it was hard to see that that would be the issue. Because there was the sort of, you thought you'd refreshed it and it was right, all good. Right, right, So, and we were out in the middle of Nebraska. And about the same time, the transmission started uh, acting a little funny. And that was just my own, my own problem. I didn't, uh, uh, I was a little low on oil. But yeah, that was, uh, I was on the way out to a tech session in South Dakota and ended up, that was one of the few places in the area that had U-Hauls. So we threw it into the U-Haul and I, I drove it back home and grabbed one of my other bikes and rode it out. So What ended up being the problem? Uh, the problem was just the fact that the points had tightened up and it was, uh, you know, sparking intermittently and Sounded like World War Three. <laughs> it was popping and banging. I I got the eyes of every person on the street looking at me. <laughs> I can imagine. So, yeah, and we had we had intended on just continuing the ride and you know fix it when I got out there. But at that point in time, we still had a couple hundred miles to go. And, yeah, and uh, so I I punted, headed on, on yeah, back. Sometimes home. you got to do it. I know. Got to step back and punt. I know the feeling. Well. I gotta say, thanks for the, the time. Your bike is an amazing time machine and many happy miles ahead. Well, thanks. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. And I will. I'm gonna ride the heck out of the good thing. Good for you. Good for you. <laughs> you. We're fine. We're good. Nice to meet you. Thank you, Jim. Yeah.
One of the reasons so many airheads are still on the road today is because of great parts suppliers and enthusiasts like Boxer 2 Valve. William and Edward Plam at Boxer 2 Valve have years of experience with the 247 Airhead, dating back to their first repair shop and dealership in the early 1980s. Boxer 2 Valve stocks and sources only premium parts and tools, so no need to worry if you're getting a cheap pattern or shortcut part. They simply don't carry them. Boxer 2 Valve has extensively researched which parts are correct for your motorcycle. Just enter your year and model and you'll see only the parts that fit your bike. That takes the guesswork out of the ordering process. Real-time stock information that is also available, so no need to guess what may be on back order that could delay your project. Also, if you're digging into a repair for the first time, be sure to check out Boxer 2 Valve's video repair series. These cover both twin shock and post 81 models and are great tutorials that go step-by-step -step through a variety of repairs and parts replacement procedures. The video series is a great workshop companion, one I've used many times over the years. So for all your airhead parts needs, boxer2valve.com. That's the number two, boxer2valve.com. All right, everybody, we're pleased now to be joined by George Thomas. He's head wrench and proprietor at Air Support BMW in Kitchener, Ontario. George will be joining us from time to time to visit on any number of subjects 247 related. You can learn more about his shop and services. Yeah, you guessed it, airsupportbmw.com. This week, part one of a two-part conversation about finding an airhead mechanic. We're on the line with George Thomas at Air Support BMW. And George, good to catch up with you again. You were a guest on the program here earlier this year, and you wrote and said, look, I've been getting some feedback from folks who heard uh, my episode, and they'd love to, they've been asking some questions. Here are some things we'd like to hear you talk about or covered on the podcast. You wrote me a note and said, Darren, let's get together and visit. So I'm happy to do it. Good to have you back on the program, George. Yes, and thank you very much. And, and for sure, I got a lot of really positive uh, uh, feedback from people that heard my podcast, and it was nice to hear. Uh, it was nice to hear that more than just my family were listening to it. <laughs> and uh, and they did. They they offered some ideas of topics, and um, and so you know there's quite a list. And then then when I contacted you, we decided to talk about one or two of them. So, yeah. Let's, Thank you again for taking me taking me back. Oh, indeed, indeed. I enjoyed our conversation last time. So our topic today, I think, is a good one. And even for the most sometimes seasoned uh, rider or I don't want to say uh, novice mechanic, but let's just say, you know, hobbyist mechanic like myself uh, uh, who does a lot of home repairs, there's going to be a time where you're going to need to find a specialist, whether it's for a component repair because you don't have the tools uh, or expertise, say, to do a transmission, or if you're a new rider, novice rider, or someone uh, in who's just gotten into these bikes, or conversely, someone who, like many of us might have been, I know I was uh, when I was much younger, I was put the oil and gas in it and find somebody uh, to help take care of the bike and maintain it for me. So our topic today, the overriding, the overriding idea here in conversation is 
finding an airhead mechanic. So tell me about that, George. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, and the way the way I sort of phrased it in my head was um, was what is a BMW guru and do I need one in my life? Um, you know, because I think we can all agree that um, guru means expert, and um, in the context of BMW airhead, what does that really mean? A lot of your past guests on the Airhead 247 podcast, uh, I think I would consider gurus. I think most of the audience would consider gurus. Um, I think the interesting thought exercise there is is is, is that is that a term of equality across all that that group of people? What I mean by that is um, clearly some have an amazing gift of recall and can tell you a lot of details from their experience working in contemporary times in, uh, on the airheads in, in the 70s, for example, at the dealership. Um, a lot of guys can remember bulletins and part numbers, which you know I think is fa- just fantastic. Uh, and some are masters of fabrication and can fix and or reproduce. Pretty much anything you need on your on your airhead now uh, to keep you going or get you going, um, and then there's a couple of guys that are just really amazing restoration experts that I think make the factory look pretty sloppy. So none of them are really equal, right? They're they're all gurus at different things, and and so the conversation is well, which one of those do I really need in my life, or or uh, or any of them, um, right? So that got me thinking about the concept of finding somebody that you can actually relate to that that can actually touch your bike like a lot of the people that that have been on your podcast uh and others out there that haven't that are mechanics for bmws um you don't have access to them it's it's great to be able to listen to them talk or see their uh instagram or facebook or their website but you don't really get to to um to relate to them right um and so you know and sort of one of the one of the things that's happened to me in the past is i've had customers come in and and give me some chapter and verse from information from from say Snowbum's website, and it's an amazing reference. But it, but I think it's a it gives you a bit of tunnel vision, right? Um, so what I want to talk about today was how do you find that person? How do you find that caretaker that you can trust, while also amplifying your own knowledge by learning from as many sources as possible? And I'm kind of thinking off the top of my head, what I'm really saying is be your own guru, right? Does that make sense? It does. And let me back up there. And you brought up a great point. Uh, we had Robert Fleischer, uh, Snowbum, on the program uh, earlier uh, in in the run. And, yeah, he's not – he is, a, as you say, a different sort of kind of guru, uh, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Maybe more just in the knowledge and information sense than in a practical repair uh, or mechanic sense. Of course, everybody's familiar with his website – and I can imagine someone in your position, um, when a customer brings a bike to you and says, well, uh, so-and-so said this, and I need you to do this, and your experience tells you, well, you know, that's sometimes the case. Uh, but here, that's not the case, and you might have to spend a little bit more time explaining why you're doing what you're doing when that, might, when that shouldn't necessarily be the case always. Yeah. Right, yeah, is or it, God forbid you disagree, or God forbid you disagree on uh, you know valve clearances or something like yeah. that, because nobody I mean, says this and I say that, and the manual says another thing, which I think that's a pretty silly example because we'd all agree. But you know what I mean, right? I do. Uh, you don't want to get in a disagreement about what the gurus are all saying plus what you think, right? Yeah, exactly. So, okay, being your own guru. So, in essence, what you're sort of uh, espousing here is being your own expert and your own spiritual advisor. So. To um, 
somebody who's new, novice, or somebody like you or I maybe who's been around these bikes for a number of years, practically speaking, how, how in your mind, how do you come about becoming your own guru? Right, and I've given this some thought because it's, uh, of course, it always sounds easier than it is. But, you know, one of the things I thought about was um, because sources don't always agree, including gurus, and, and you know, you mentioned uh, the, the, some of the differences there, um, you need to, I think that the owner needs to balance out all the information they can possibly get. Um, and you even mentioned, you know, knowing your limits. That's part of being a guru, too. And then when you pass it off, you seek out somebody else who can do some of those things. And we'll get to that in a minute. But but I think really the thing is for me is to is to um, find a lot of information, compare it, keep an open mind, and then find somebody that you can trust uh, as a caretaker for your bike that, that feels the same way and that can work with you and you can have an honest, open conversation and not an argument who also seeks out um, multiple sources of information uh, and even better, who has a lot of experience, uh, demonstrated experience and, and reputation for just knowing anyway, so you can really, really trust them. But, but I think, you know, part, part of that is just yourself understanding as much as you can or want to uh, up to that point as well. Um, I know you've interviewed Andy recently from Barrington, and he routinely admits on Instagram that he uses many different manuals and sources um, often when it comes to some of the more complicated jobs. He even calls other shops like me. I'm sure he calls other shops besides me too. But, um, you know, that's part of that relationship of, geez, you know, I, I think I know, but I don't really 100% know. I better go find somebody else. And so, in essence, you know, maybe Andy and I are learning to be our own gurus as well. Uh, maybe in a different sense than I'm asking the, um, the BMW owner to be. Um, but but it does come back to limits, though. I think that I'm not. I'm certainly not saying, hey, everybody, uh, you're now your own guru. Have at it. You know, you don't need the rest of us. You don't need to repair people anymore. Go for it, right? No, we're we're saying, learn as much as you can from as many sources. Balance out the good and the bad, and then figure out what your limits are. Um, you know, you hinted at that earlier, and it's going to be a wide range of limits, I think, Darren, that people are going to have because there's just a wide range of skill level out there or, or, or confidence, really, I think a lot of it comes down to. Did you have a guru uh, in this field or in another area of life? Certainly in my past lives working on uh, big marine diesel engines and uh, in other parts of my life I had um, really good mentors and gurus who uh, – you know, that's actually a really good question because I think about it all the time. My past um, work on on ships, on like these 5,000 horsepower uh, diesel engines, one of the things that they taught me, that these mentors taught me, was how to listen and, and, and how to listen for changes, you know, more than anything else because that's really all you can listen for. So once you know what the baseline sounds like, then you can understand what the change is. But then it's understanding what's causing that change. And I bring a lot of that to uh, the airhead world for sure because, um, you know, once I figured out what a properly running airhead, airhead sounded like, I've got that mental sort of uh, uh, reference in my head and that I can, I can hear a sick airhead and, and kind of it helps me pinpoint why. Um, you know, a lot of people I've run into over the years and read on, online and forums or others or even at club meets and stuff, have this mentality that a airhead is supposed to sound like a 1930s Russian tractor <laughs> and, and, won't, and won't need any maintenance. And, and, you know, 
I can see. I'm not. I'm not picking on them. I can see how you would think that if you've never had a frame of reference that was different, or been told different, or shown different. So to answer your question in a long-winded way, yes, I had some great mentors that taught me that skill of um, understanding the machine through other ways than just reading a book or looking at it. You know, there's listening. There's, you know, we also used to walk by the engine and look at the exhaust temperature every 15 minutes and look for any kind of variation, we'd see, oh, there's a dripping nozzle or, or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Turbocharger is getting hot, something like that. So, Yeah, and everybody, I think, ha- approaches it a little bit differently. You, as a professional mechanic, have a, a worldview of that and how, how this idea relates to other mechanics you know, other people in the industry and your customers. Conversely, someone like me, who's more of a rider and, again, a home, a hobbyist, mechanic, uh, a professional, I've I've used the term professional parts replacer uh, to describe (laughs) myself at times. I wouldn't say I'm really a good diagnostic mechanic, but I think everybody comes into it in their own way over time. And just by virtue of the age group and the people who who ride 247s were a little bit older lot although i know there are a lot of younger guys listening uh more more and more these days uh and there are a lot of guys who uh, aren't necessarily interested in maintaining uh, their bikes other than you know just some of the basic maintenance and they feel more comfortable taking it to somebody else to do that that's true that's true and i'd say in, in a lot of cases um I have I have those customers who who really enjoy the um, let's say the, uh, the the educational piece of reading books and manuals and and they 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 love the, that that format but they but they don't they they they've learned enough to know that they never want to actually fix their bike themselves and and so they they need to go find a shop um, and that's great it's it's like you said they they admit that they know enough they're, that to be dangerous and so they stick to the riding and leave the repairs to somebody else. Yeah, um, but they still enjoy the process of learning uh, and dreaming about learning. And you know, I've, I have a lot of a lot of my customers actually. I always ask what people do for a living when I do an, a customer intake because I'm just curious about their lives. And a lot of them are um, engineers. Uh, a lot of engineering background in yep. my customers. Yeah, I, I'm not really surprised natural, to hear that. Real natural kind of natural curiosity is, I guess, the word. Yeah, I'm not surprised to hear that. In fact, m- many of the folks that we've interviewed on the program have some sort of science or engineering background as well. It's it's a common thread uh, in, in the BMW motorcycle world. Okay, George, so that being said, so relationships, developing a relationship with a mechanic, that's important. Uh, I know yeah. over the years, uh, listeners have heard me talk about Leo Goff. Uh, that's somebody who taught me a lot and was patient with me over the years. Uh, when I lived in Memphis, he was is a guru to myself and, and many others in the area. And uh, even all these years uh, later, I still lean on him uh, for advice uh, and occasional jobs. In fact, he just uh, reworked uh, some heads and, and valves for me on a 78 RS. Uh, and I can say building a relationship with, and it's, of course it's different with, with everybody. With Leo, he, when I first met him, I was in my 20s. I was kind of young and dumb, and I was, as I mentioned, pour gas and oil in it and go for it and hope for the best. And he was real patient with me and helped me maintain the bike. But he, he was smart enough to know 
what my limitations were and what to tell me what to do. And interestingly enough, we sort of connected on another level not long after uh, we met in that he was a bass player and a musician. And I, I was in Memphis. I worked as a drummer. So then, you know, we sort of connected that way. And our relationship grew a little bit uh, deeper and stronger through playing music together and stuff like that. So, you know, he, in essence, became a friend and not, you know, not just a mechanic. And I wasn't just a customer. So that, of course, now that took 20 some years to develop. So in your mind, especially coming from your side of it, developing a relationship with a customer or a customer coming to you and getting comfortable with you as a mechanic, how, how does that progress? Yeah, well, I think you nailed it with your own story of you and Leo, um, but I, I do it a, a bit quicker than 20 years. <laughs> I, do, I do seek out, like, uh, like I mentioned before, how I just want to know about the people that are bringing these bikes to me. And um, I, can, I do it over email quite a bit, uh, but the face-to-face is obviously better. And obviously, I have a lot of um, customers who don't live anywhere near me and ship me uh, stuff from all over, so I don't always get to meet face-to-face. But when I do, uh, it's even better. And here's a really funny example, actually. It's similar to yours, um, where, <clears throat> excuse me, which, which comes around to me just basically, I'm going to say, you know, finding common ground is really important, and then building trust. But here's one. A guy brought in his uh, R100GS Bumblebee just a couple weeks ago. And um, he's had it for eight years, and he's never changed the oil or set the valves. So, you know, we had to talk about that, how that's not necessarily the right way to do it. And no, good. I'd be, happy to, I'd be happy to teach him how to, how to do those things. Um, but in the meantime, I'll do it for him this one time. Um, but then I got to talk about his background, and, of course, he's, a, he's an engineer in the hydroelectric um, field. And we got talking a bit more, so, so there was common ground there. He also was from near the hometown where my uh, Gunther, who works here, they came from a similar place in Germany, so there was that common ground. And then um, he mentioned he did judo, so I said, oh, my son does judo. Long story short, they've trained at the same gyms. They fought hmm. each other, like they've trained together. <laughs> Interesting, <laughs> you know? wow. The world is so small. Uh, and, you know, I would never have known that if I, if I was, uh, if I treated myself like Jiffy Lube and just said, okay, put the bike over there, sit down, have a coffee, you'll, I'll be done in 20 minutes. Instead, I took probably an hour uh, of chit-chatting, which I normally do on, an, on a new customer intake. I spend quite a bit of time getting to know somebody because I want to know what's important to them and I want to know what their values are and I want them to trust me and, and know what my values are. So um, that's my that's my way of doing it. I think that other people... You can take whatever approach is comfortable with you, but I think that the key to that is is getting is cracking that door open uh, beyond just being um, a customer and a mechanic. I think it's, it's not um, it's not just your average garage, right? This is this is something a, a cherished family member that you're bringing in to get get to get worked on or fixed um, or restored or whatever the case may be. You, you want to know a little bit more about each other, so. Whatever is comfortable. I'm not saying throw a barbecue and invite over for dinner. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Although I've done that. (laughs) (laughs) So wait, I do have to back up. Uh, So this uh, customer rider will will remain nameless, but so I I find that hard to believe. Eight years, no valve adjustments and no oil changes. Obviously, the bike was ridden sparingly over that time, but still, good grief. Certainly, yeah, you're right. In both cases, it was written sparingly, and um, but honestly, and it's not as uncommon as you think. I have a lot of customers who really who uh, do not do those regular maintenance items, um, even if they engine oil seems to be something that's easy for people to to think about and do 
oil filters scare people because of the $2,000 O-ring right, right. Um, stories around the Internet. But final drives, drive shafts and gearboxes usually come out looking like milk because they, they just people rarely um, change them or they think, oh, it's good for five years. So, yeah, that's part of the education process, or, and, it's, and it's, it's kind of what we talked about before. It's, um, I can teach you how to do it, and I'm happy to do that. Or if you're just a rider, let me do it, but, but let me do it. <laughs> you know, let's make an appointment every, every year. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. And getting back to Leo, you know, one of the interviews uh, I did with him over the past few years for the program, one thing he said that stuck out to me, uh, and this is really underscoring what what you just mentioned here is the majority of his repair work and this was he was referring to this back in the 70s when he was still servicing new newer bikes for bmw dealers slash six slash seven things like that just as a reference point most of the repair work was because people were not following regular maintenance schedules whether that was, as you say, an oil change, a filter change, a valve adjustment, uh, changing um, gear oil, final drive oil, whatever it may be, those those what what you and I and a lot of people take for granted as simple, you know, yearly procedures. Not everybody does, and so we just can't say enough. Uh, if you're a new rider, a novice rider out there, or if you're listening and uh, haven't got in the habit of doing that just yet, <laughs> please do, uh, for all of our sakes. Um, but uh, I think the important thing there, again, though, you, you mentioned the building the relationship thing, uh, is also you have, I think, as a customer, you have to have some respect and boundaries uh, for, for a mechanic or for somebody uh, who you're taking your bike to. That's something I learned a long time ago, but not everybody has, I don't think. And I think the best example of that is, you know, so let's say I bring my bike to air support. Uh, I need, um, you know, I need the final drive resealed and reshimmed. I need new tires, oil change, and maybe new steering head bearing. I leave it with you in November. And then here I am, uh, second week in December, emailing and calling, is the bike ready yet? Right. So. <laughs> yep, it happens, so you're right. It, it, uh, that's a, it, you know, patience is a is a virtue when it comes to working with shops like uh, like me, and I'm, I'm sure other shops feel the same same way. Yes. Um. And yeah, you're kind of. The re, I think you said respect. That's important. Well, yeah, uh, that's actually pretty huge. Respect for the journey I've taken. Uh, respect for what I'm doing. Respect for the reputation I've earned. Uh, and I'm just speaking, when I say I, I just mean a, a good shop. Uh, it could be anybody. Um, those are important. And, and my own personal experience is that, um, and this kind of goes back to my guru comment before, um, when people bring a certain guru bias with them to me and expect me to act, look, or feel or like, like somebody else, and I'm not that person, we, we get into a conflict. And so... Um, what I mean by that is, you know, if, if, you, if you find a shop um, that aligns exactly with your particular biases, and let's, let's just, for the argument's sake, say the biases are wrong, like I don't need to set my valves for eight years, you're kind of doing yourself a disservice by not, it's, it's back to my comparing sources comment, you know, that mechanic is another source of information and experience, and if you go against that grain, 
and don't respect that experience, you're kind of doing yourself uh, not a favor. Um, and I've had that experience. I mean, it happens every, not, it doesn't happen very often, but it, it happens in often enough that, it, that it's fresh in my memory that um, I also have customers who are, are liars. You know, hey, this bike has never been, this final drive has never <laughs> been opened and opened up, it's packed full of silicone. <laughs> yeah. It's like, okay, you clearly tried this at home and it's, it's something, or somebody did, yeah. right? And now you're bringing it to me. Just be honest. Like, it's, it's not a, I know that's a, there's a pride thing involved, but it, honesty is huge, right? So yeah, respect and honesty, I think, are important. And blending, again, blending um, what you think a guru should be with what you're actually getting, and 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 maybe you're growing together. By the way, maybe maybe the maybe the person you're working with as your mechanic, uh, you're working together to get better together. And just hey, it's gonna hey Bob, it's gonna take me uh, a lot longer because I didn't you know I didn't I've never really done this before, or I've only done one final drive before. I'm gonna need more time, but I'll definitely do it, and I'll back up my work like that. Those are good conversations. Yeah, no, I, I agree. So another thing that I think falls in this whole discussion. Well, we're going to have to leave it there with George. We'll pick up that conversation next time. Reminder, you can catch up with George at airsupportbmw.com. Now back to the Platte Valley Tech Days outside of Kansas City, Missouri for our final segment, a conversation with the host, Mark Nelson. All right, we're sitting here with Mark Nelson. Uh, and Mark, thanks first off for hosting the uh, Tech Days here. It's my pleasure. It's my, I couldn't do this without my wife, so I'm glad we're able to do that. Uh, we do two of these a year, and it's it's always great to catch up with friends. Yeah, and this is a great location. We'll just say you're at an undisclosed spot north of Kansas City there you somewhere. Yeah, uh, Platte River's right behind us, if I remember. Right on about. 100 yards from the Platte River. Yeah, yeah, it's a great location, great shop, really impressive. So thanks for doing that. Uh, this is my first Tech Days, and I had a great time visiting with everybody. But I want to talk to you about your motorcycle. So we're sitting here looking at a 74 uh, R90-6. That's right. Uh, you've got a wind jammer on it with the fairing lowers, saddlebags decked out for touring. And as we were talking the other day, that's a real familiar setting for me. I had a Slash 5 set up real mm -hmm. similar with the big mm -hmm. tank and the fairing, and I was saying, boy, that's just a, a comfortable place to sit, very, isn't it? Very period correct, yeah, it's, 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 great. it's great to ride. Now, there's an interesting story behind this bike. Yeah, this, this motorcycle uh, was originally bought in Kansas City by a cousin of mine in 74. Brand new. Brand new, bought it brand new. Engel uh, Motors? Engel Motors, bought it at Engel Motors, and... Uh, he rode it for a couple of years, got my dad interested in BMWs, at which time my dad bought a R60 slash five or something. I'm not exactly sure what it was, but it was an early 70s model. And a couple of years after my cousin bought this bike, uh, he was ready to get another one. So he bought a new 77 or 78, I can't remember what it was, but it was a nice red, pretty, I remember seeing it. And uh, my dad ended up buying this bike from him and uh, sold his other. And uh, he and my mother rode this bike all over, Me New Mexico, Colorado, Nevada. I mean, they went everywhere. So this that. is late 70s? Yeah, 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 mid to late 70s, yeah. And uh, so they rode and rode and rode. And uh, uh, matter of fact, the, in 1980, when my wife and I got married, uh, my folks were just coming in from Colorado and they rode in on the motorcycle to come to our wedding. So that's kind of <laughs> neat. Wow. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, in 1985, my dad decided that he was about 
done riding. He said, I just don't think I'm, he said, I think I'm done. So I said, okay, so I'd like to buy that bike because I'd had an R90S prior to that, which I would love to have back now, as everybody knows, and uh, sold that uh, back in whenever. Actually, my dad ended up with it, and believe it or not, he traded it in on a John Deere lawnmower. <laughs> okay, yeah, that, that hurts your feelings. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I bought this bike. I was living in Texas at the time, and so I, I hauled it to Texas, and I rode it for a little bit down there. And then we ended up moving back to Kansas in uh, 88 or 9. And a friend of ours, Jim, whom we used to ride on Sundays with, there were six or eight of us who go out every Sunday and ride and eat breakfast and that sort of thing. Uh, he called me up one day and said, you still have your dad's bike? And I said, yeah. He said, you're interested in selling it? And I said, yeah, I probably would. You know, I had a couple daughters at the time were, you know, sure. teenage. And I was working full time, and I just really have time to mess with it. So he, Jim came and got it and hauled it off. And that was in 89. And I went without a bike for a lot of years. Wish, still wished I had one, but I went without one for a long time. And in 2011, my brother called me and said that our cousin, Corwin, had dad's bike back at his car dealership in Chanute, Kansas. How did it get there? He bought it back from the guy who bought it from me. Okay. So it made full circle, clear back to the original owner, sometime in the 90s. And when my brother told me about this, I called my cousin. I said, Corwin, I want to buy that bike back. So 23 years later, after I sold it, I got it back. That's amazing. And I've had it since then. And this time it's going to stay with me. <laughs> so that's kind of the history. It's kind of a neat story, yeah, really. Yeah, really. And uh, wow. we've really enjoyed it. And matter of fact, my wife's big into motorcycles. She doesn't get to ride much, but she loves to ride. And she was very encouraging that I get this bike back, especially because it has a real close family history. Family history, so, indeed. Yeah. So <clears throat> it appears as though it was well looked after by all the owners. Yeah, it's, it's never set outside. It's always been inside. And my cousin, when he first got it, started working at polishing the valve covers and a few little spots and all that. And he must have really worked at it because he told me use semi-chrome. So, I mean, you, can you imagine how oh, long God. you have to rub on something yes. to get it nice and shiny with just semi-chrome? So my dad kept that up. The guy that bought it from me kept it clean and all polished. And, of course, now you can see it's the same way. And I've actually taken stuff off and used buffing oil on it and everything. And it's, it looks really nice. Now it's original paint on it's the tank? It's original paint. It looks like it's just freshly painted, uh, but it's, it's all original really paint. It's really good condition, yeah, the tank. Beautiful. I mean, that's the first thing you notice. So yeah. <clears throat> tell me about, you know, I guess since the, your current tenure of ownership, uh, what kind of things have you had to look after on the bike? Oh, just the typical things. Valve adjustments. I've done a couple of top ends on it. Uh, lots of tires. I've taken the timing chain cover off. It's got all new guts underneath the timing cover, chain tensioner, that sort of stuff. Uh, it's got a new 400-watt charging system on it. Uh, I have the original transmission. There's nothing wrong with it, but it had about 80,000 miles on it. So I took it off, found a, a, a slash five, or not, excuse me, a 77, 78, five-speed uh, transmission, rebuilt that, put that in. So I'm, it's got a couple, two or 3,000 miles on it now. But I've got the original kickstart transmission in a box, and I'll get, I'll get to that one of these days down the road, so I've yeah. got a spare to put back into it. But there's been a lot of things. I've put a lot of electronic stuff on it, updated some of that, uh, put some running lights on it. 
just numerous but little nothing, nothing, nothing major. No. Now I am going to this winter. Uh, I'm going to re-ring it and maybe bore the pistons. If not, I'm going to kind of weigh the price. You know, the cost effectiveness on redoing that, or just trying to find some you know good Nicosil cylinders. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's be honest. Cost effective, that's a relative yeah, term. Yeah, you're exactly right. When it comes to working on these things. You just do it for fun. Yeah, you do it for fun. Right. You do it for fun. And you try to find the best value you can yeah. in parts and things. So, you know, I still try to, you know, try to, to honor Ingalls and, you know, patronize them. Because, you know, BMW shops are, they're just not that plentiful. And, you know, uh, we're fortunate to have one here. You've in got Kansas a good City. one. You've got yes, a good one do. in Kansas great City. Great people. Mike does a great job down there. I've yeah. uh, visited Kansas City a number of times and stopped in, you know, just to check it out. Interesting thing about them is, you know, they're sort of a legacy dealer. They are. I mean, you mentioned uh, this bike was originally purchased there yes. in 1974. Yes. You go into that shop, they don't really have all the trappings and layout that uh, you would think with a modern true. BMW That's dealer. That's true. That's true. They don't. They don't know the, uh, the uh, you know, they're into, I think, Royal Enfields now, too. That's I right. Think they sell Royal Enfields. But, yeah, they still, they don't have a huge showroom. No. They just don't. They don't have a big footprint for that. You know, they've been there, oh, I don't know, gosh. I can't remember what Mike told me. They've been there many, 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 many years. Yes. Uh, and this bike has been serviced there many times. Over the past and the years. current mileage is what eighty some thousand on there. It's got eighty right at 80, 82, I think. And so here, the amazing thing about that is, so you haven't has the speedometer been uh, serviced, lube? It has one time. Okay. It has one time. My cousin kept very well track of what was going on with the speedometer, and it did stop once, but it stopped when he got home. Just as he pulled in the driveway, he had just looked down it, and he said it just turned over, and he said then he, he, about a block away, he said it just didn't do anything. So I sent it in. It had 50, I believe, if I remember, I wrote it down, 52,300 and some miles on it when it stopped. So I sent it to uh, uh, Overseas Speedometer yep. in Austin, Texas. In Texas, yep. And fixed it, and it's... It, so I've put 32,000 miles on, which is not a lot, but uh, it's been a lot of places. I bet. It's been yeah, a lot. And of that's, yeah, I mean, that's one thing you can tell, the distinctive gauges, especially on the 74, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, with the white lettering and the mm -hmm. font and everything yes. on there. And that was one of the first things I noticed. I said, boy, you know, that still has the original gauges on it does there. everything's still original on it i mean it's except for some of the stuff you can't see you right. know like the, the 400 watt charging system and that sort of stuff but you know that's nice for heated gear yeah you know, gloves jacket something like that so yeah it uh it's 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 just a great motorcycle it yeah. runs wonderfully uh i'm really proud to have it and then, unfortunately my dad passed away before i got it back but I often wondered, you know, what he'd think. You'd have been he, happy if, to see it? Yeah, he'd have been, oh, he'd have loved it. Yeah, yeah. he would have loved to have seen it. Probably would have got him on it, too. I have no <laughs> doubt. I have no doubt. But I, matter of fact, after I bought it, I did take my mom for a ride on it. Oh, cool. She said, I remember spending a lot of time on the back of this motorcycle. We had such a great time. She said, yeah, your dad and I, we did a lot of things together and traveled a lot of places. They just, they loved it. She loved riding. Still, She's 80, and she'd still get on the back Good of it for today. her. Yeah, she Good would. for her. Yeah. Good for her. So let me ask you um, about the Airheads Club. Sure. So of course, this, we're talking about the Tech Days here, uh, and Joe Brinkman's the Air Marshal uh, from Missouri. 
And so tell me how you got involved with this. Obviously, you've got, you know, a great shop for this. I sure. And we've got everything in here a man could need uh, for any sort of service or maintenance. Um, tell me about hosting these. Well, I, I, we moved to Missouri from Kansas in 2013, and I had my first tech day at our other residence. It was a three-car garage. It was a nice shop. It wasn't near as big as this one. But uh, I had my first tech day because there really weren't that many tech days to go to, and I wanted to learn. I had a lot of things I needed to learn yeah. how to work on this motorcycle. You know, back when I was a kid, when I had my R90S and my dad had this bike, well, he did all the work on them, you know, and I'm out being a teenager doing the stuff teenagers Putting did. gas in it yeah, and go. Yeah, putting gas in and go. And uh, so anyway, I decided to have tech day, and I think I had nine people at my first tech day. And uh, it just has increasingly grew a little bit. And then I got to the point where I think about 2015, we started doing two a year, one here in November, first weekend in November, then we do one the first weekend of May. And it has grown to where, well, you know, had 32 or three people here for November, which is great considering what the weather was like Friday and Saturday morning. It was, it was sketchy. Terrible. It was sketchy. It was terrible, but we had a great turnout. And I usually average probably in the May Tech Day, we probably have 30 to 35 people that camp, but we'll have 60 to 65 people through here during the day on and Saturday. And for a lot of guys, it's as much as maybe a social affair or absolutely. a rally yes. as it is yes. a wrenching session. Yes, absolutely. And there's always something to learn. I've learned something about a motorcycle or a tip or a technique every single time we've had a tech day, which is great. Yeah. I mean, it's wonderful. You know, and everybody does. Yeah, well, you know, we had a guy show up yesterday. Uh, he drove two or three hours just to come in and ask a few questions. Didn't work on a bike or anything. Yeah. Just wanted to ask a few questions, and he wasn't here very long. But you know, that's it's these tech days have attracted a lot of people. And when you have a successful tech day where you've got people that are knowledgeable about, you know, this is a transmission issue. Well, this is probably what's mm -hmm. wrong. Let's pop it open. Uh, my timing's off. You know, how can I reset the timing? Uh, valve adjustments. We've replaced. We've replaced a lot of sprockets for timing chains and all of that. I mean, just really not anything we can't do at a tech day. Yeah, that's it's, true. Yeah, we've got a tire changing machine. We did that yesterday. Yep. You know, just try to have everything that everybody needs to, to work on their bikes. Yeah, we did the wheel bearings, which yeah. was new for many, almost yeah. all of us, I think. And right? I had never seen that done. And I'm glad you did that on your <laughs> motorcycle. That was great. I learned a lot about that. Yes, yeah, yeah. I hope not to do it again for a while. <laughs> <laughs> I can understand that. <laughs> well, there, there it was, wasn't that bad. I mean, no. you know, in all fairness, you know, I, there were a few user errors on my part. I dropped a few top hats and spacers here and there. But in yep. the end, we got it all figured in out. In the end, you got it figured out. And the next time, hopefully it doesn't have happened. But you know what you did? That's to, exactly right. To eliminate right. those problems. Yeah, we'll learn from my mistakes That's next exactly time somebody right. does that That's here. exactly right. Well, Mark, uh, kudos for a great event, and thanks for Thank hosting Thank you. Everybody. I appreciate that, Darren. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, I feel really honored that you would think enough of my, me and my tech day to come up here and bring your bike and, and put on a 247 podcast. Thank you, buddy. You Glad betcha. to do it. Thank you. Glad to do it. All right, that's a wrap for this week's show. And if you guys are listening at the Tech Days in Platte Valley this weekend, a hearty hello to everybody. I hope to see you all soon. Until next time, so long, everybody.
The Airheads 247 podcast is distributed and produced by From Off Productions. Our producer engineer is Jeff Glover. I'm Darren Dorton. Look forward to catching up with you next time. Thank you.